hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, in which Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira of PS Literary read and critique your query letters and opening pages, after which we'll go to today's guest. Dear Bianca, Carly and Cecilia, I recently listened to your new podcast and I'm hooked. No pun intended. I've attached here and pasted below my query in the first five pages of my diverse historical romance cross-genre novel, YA slash NA LGBTQ, in the hopes that it will be chosen for discussion. Thank you very much for your informative and entertaining podcast. I love it. Signed an author with wild dreams. The Query Venice, 1678. On a dark, gloomy night, two infants arrive at the Hospitale della Pieta, Hospital of Devout Mercy. Serafina, the illegitimate daughter of a nobleman, and Gaia, the daughter of a murderer. Along with transgender narrator and protagonist Katerina, a.k.a. Little Bird, the three grow up at the convent orphanage among society's outcasts, the illegitimate mixed-race, disabled, orphaned. In 1703, an electrifying presence enters their lives, genius composer Antonio Vivaldi. 
25, an ordained priest who falls in love with songbird Serafina. When she rejects his offer of an illicit affair, jealous Gaia, 20, seduces him and they go on a whirlwind and ultimately disastrous musical tour. Meanwhile, Little Bird, who's 16, who also loves Serafina, flees the sequestered convent for a new life as Dominico, a soldier. Their separate quests for love, freedom and sexual identity take them on unexpected journeys that lead to heartbreaking love affairs, a calamitous marriage, murder, imprisonment and fleeting fame. As their desires split and intersect, three separate love triangles form that include a Florentine count who turns out to be a traumatized, violent teenager, a lost boy and an acromat in the Commedia d'Art. Title is a feminist story of passion, violence, religion and sexual freedom. At 110,000 words, this cross-genre, new adult, young adult, LGBTQ historical novel explores the idea that human lives are defined by individual passions, whether artistic, ideological or carnal. Title is accessible to the 21st century reader with a fast-paced modern language and dark humour. Set against the decadent, colourful backdrop of a Baroque-era Italy, the narrative is told in dual voices, little birds, seraphinas, as they explore the Venetian underworld, a Florentine castle, a military regiment and a travelling theatre troupe. Title has the sweeping romantic appeal of Bridgerton, the coming-of-age romance friendship of Elena Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend and the bawdy gothic sensibility of the 2008 18 black comedy feature film The Favourite. It's an entertaining book that would readily adapt to episodic film. I'm a fiction and non-fiction author with a background in academia and journalism. I've won multiple journalism awards and was recently a finalist in the New Millennium Writing Contest. I'm currently enrolled in the Rutgers University Master's Program in English and Media Writing and have studied in the West Virginia Wesleyan College MFA Program. I've also attended numerous writing conferences, including the New York Writers' Workshop. Though this is my first novel, I'm concurrently working on a related non-fiction journalism project on child genius. Okay, Cece, why don't you kick us off with our first query letter? All right. Um, I'll be honest, I had to read this multiple times to get a sense of what the story is about. I think it's because there's a lot of information, most of it not quite pertinent to a query letter. It's almost reading like more of a synopsis, though not entirely like a synopsis either. So my big note for this writer, and thank you for sending this to us, but would be just to look up how to write a query letter online and some great free resources and rewrite it. I feel like that would be easier than to edit this. Um, Specifically, I'd encourage the writer to look up Query letter versus synopsis and the differences, it can be really easy to get the two confused because they both have to do with conveying what your story is about. But yeah, that would be my big note. In terms of like more specific notes, I would bring the fact that it's dual POV between Serafina and Caterina, aka Little Bird, up to the top. I don't think the second paragraph that starts with the title is a feminist story of passion. We basically don't need it. Um, We don't need anything there except for the comps. And the fact that it's told in dual POV. And I would say that the paragraph that 
tells us about your credentials as a writer and your background is great. And you can just keep it as is. I, I wouldn't change a thing there. So yeah, just the meaty part of the query, I, I would just rewrite it. I think it would be be better at this point. I think perhaps that's the, the trouble with being somebody who writes in academia and journalism is that you're constantly writing to be as clear as possible, to give as much detail as possible, which maybe doesn't always serve every writing goal best. What did you think, Carly? I, I definitely agree. I did I did find it was hard for me just to kind of pick a point to kind of build off of in terms of, you know, a, a helpful critique. Again, this sounds very interesting. That's why, you know, I, I, I feel like there's so much here to work with, but I really just think, you know, uh, starting from scratch is, is best. So, um, you know, one of, you know, my kind of repeat themes throughout this podcast is the idea that, you know, you don't have to tell us how to feel, you know, show us through words. So things like passion, artistic, ideological, carnal, like words like that, you know, we're going to figure that out as we read it. So those are the type of things that I would cut. I would really focus on the plot. There's so much here that's super interesting. Venice, the historical element, you know, the the hospital for the, you know, quote unquote, illegitimate infants, you know, there's so much here that is so interesting. And I love the little nicknames that they have for each other. So I can tell this is a very interesting book, but this query just as it stands, isn't really doing the project any favors. And unfortunately, as agents, all we have to go on is the query. So really, I think, you know, just a rewrite is, you know, is, is very normal. I mean, many writers have to rewrite their query letters numerous times. So this isn't, um, you know, new information to anybody. But in the sense of, you know, hooking an agent at this point, I just don't think the structure is, is accomplishing that. Some things that I would keep, I like the comps, you know, I like Bridgerton, the Ferrante, you know, the, the film, The Favorite, like, you know, there's lots of interesting things happening here. Here. So it's really, there's so many, as Cece said, there's so many examples and resources on the internet, but also just, you know, pick up the back of Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend and just read that back cover copy and read how that sales and how it focuses on plot, you know, just turn over the back cover copy of all these books. Even Bridgerton is a book, right? It's based on, um, it's based on a book series. So just grab that copy, uh, cover copy and, and just see what that looks like. So, you know, just finding some real world examples and some resources to do a rewrite. But ultimately this project sounds very interesting. One of the other things that they mentioned was was they weren't sure if this was YA or NA and NA, NA meaning new adult. My opinion would be that this is YA, not new adult, because I haven't really seen any new adult historical novels out there. Again, this isn't that isn't my primary category that I work on. So I feel like this is a bit more YA or depending on how long we follow these, these people for, like I'm seeing some ages here. There's a character that's 25. There's a character that's 20. Um, and so if it's written in a more of a coming of age style, this also could be, because it's historical, especially could be an adult novel. So uh, just a lot that I'm just not sure about. So I think this is a clear example of where craft meets business. And we just, we have to find our middle ground. Something that caught my eye, and I was wondering if this is important to agents. So, you know, the composer Antonio Vivaldi is referred to. He was a real composer. So is it important for you to know, and therefore for publishers to know how closely she stuck to Vivaldi's story or how much of his is is like historical kind of fact based on you know research she's done and how much she has completely fictionalized that story or is that not something that you consider to be important at all? I would say it's important to know but not necessarily at the query letter level unless it's like a set if it were a story, like if this is a story about Vivaldi, then sure. But because this is a story about Caterina and Serafina, then not necessarily at the query level. I agree. I also feel like um, there's a lot of books out there that take a historical male figure and then they're like, here's the women beside the men, or behind the men, right? Or beside them or married to them or the ex 
girlfriend or, you know, the jilted lover. And so always talking about women and their relation to men, I think that publishing really likes that trope. Um, you know, the, all of the, you know, famous men and, and their ex-wives kind of thing. Um, and, and especially with artists and their muses, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. who served as muse for a painter or for some musical piece etc yeah yeah so I think publishing likes the idea of that but it's kind of anti-feminist because it's saying that we can only as publishing through this like white male gaze we only want to know about the women in the relationship to men so I think that if this is going to be a you know behind the scenes of Vivaldi story it needs to be pitched like that but if it's not then you know it could be any composer right I didn't get the impression that it was close to him I was just wondering how important you know historical accuracy is in these kinds of stories okay Cece would you like to dive into those first few pages for us let's do it so the first line is she called me little bird sometimes little dove little nightingale little pigeon I love that she never used my real name Katerina I adored her. I will adore her forever. I want to say that I immediately love this because one of my favorite things in novels is seeing someone through another's eyes. And something I love even more than that is seeing a character seeing themselves through another's eyes. And this is what's happening here. If you think about it, after reading that line, you can tell that we are learning only about Katerina, including Katerina's love for this other person. But we haven't heard a single thing about the she, which I know is Serafina, but she hasn't named her yet. Um, we haven't heard a single thing about this other person. And even, but, but even then, it's powerful. And I am learning about both of them because it's Katerina seeing herself through another's eyes. And that kind of fixation, that kind of emotional intensity is really important in, in establishing characters and establishing characters' personalities, their place in the world, their sense of themselves. So I loved that. My big note in terms of the pages after reading them is that, so the writer, the challenge here is that the writer is asking us to be invested in the story of Serafina and Katerina and the story of the babies arriving at the hospital. So it's two stories in one. And the story of the babies arriving at the hospital has has characters of their own, right? Like Mother Damien, Maceo, Iliana. It's a lot to ask of the reader in the first five pages. I guess if I were chatting with this author, I would ask her like, how is this book going to unfold? Are we going to learn the story of what happened in the Hospedale by having Serafina and Caterina talk to each other? Because if so, I think the most efficient way to tell the story is just to go into the Hospedale story. And if not, I don't think we have to have this in the beginning. Show a scene where Caterina and Serafina are just hanging out. You can make reference to the fact that they tell stories to each other because that relationship seems really interesting and there's a lot to unpack there. But I wouldn't waste valuable real estate space on them telling a story. It's essentially five pages of them telling a story. And it's like, I'm already a person who's reading about two other people. And these two other people are then talking about a whole bunch of other people. So it's it's a lot to ask of the reader, I think, in the first five pages. So that would be my big note. My my biggest curiosity here, if I'm like, this is my personal taste as a reader and as an agent, is, is that I want to know more about Caterina and Serafina. Not that the story about the hospital doesn't seem interesting because it does. And I know it has to do with them, obviously. But I just want to know more about their relationship. I think that the story about the hospital can be woven in in a different way. Right, Carly, what did you think? I absolutely agree. I think that this ended up reading a lot like synopsis and backstory, even though it was so interesting. So this is like my my push and pull with this project. Like, I think it is so interesting. I just feel like we're just having 
a little bit of a, you know, stumbling block in terms of how to make this saleable. Cause it's agent, like my, my agent hat is always like, how do I sell this project? Right? Like I'm not a trained editor. I've been an agent for 10 years. I'm, I've always been an agent. So my, my job is to how to sell this book. So I agree. I think that this little, like the little bird, little dove, little nightingale, little pigeon, like so adorable. It shows like, I love like the topic of like obsession or closeness, like in these types of themes, especially female friendship. And so I just love that. It also reminded me a little bit of the Queen's Gambit, um, the two girls um, in the orphanage together. So I just loved that, you know, that they had this bond and they had each other in this. All that said, yeah, it just felt like so much backstory, but it's also interesting. And I thought, well, if we're starting the book in the most interesting place, it sounds like the most interesting place is the story that they're telling, not the story of the world that we're in. So I just got confused about whose book is this, you know, as somebody that doesn't have the synopsis here, all I have is the pitch and the material. Materials, I don't know if this is a frame narrative. I don't know if these two are just going to, you know, introduce the story and all of a sudden this is the Ospedale story and then we get the girls at the end. Like, I just have no idea where this book is going. But all that to say, I find it very interesting. It also ends up being very passive because they are safe in this moment. They are safe, right? They're together. I just kind of imagine them kind of like sitting on the same bed, you know, telling this story, right? Or they're kind of like cuddled in, um, in the back corner in another room, like, you know, just... I don't know. I just kind of imagine like huddled telling the story. So they're safe. And then we're introducing this dangerous moment, but we're so removed from like where the danger is. And the danger is ultimately more interesting than the safety of the girls in this moment. So it's just, you know, again, spending five pages on that is just a lot. It's okay to have a little bit of that, but it ends up being very passive. And ultimately, you know, again, sounds a bit like nonfiction in the sense, like, what is the history of this orphanage? Like, I feel like we're just reading a plaque on the side of the building almost. So again, all this to say, I find this project very interesting and very intriguing. I just got to figure out where, as an agent, I got to figure out who it's for, what it's about, where to place it in the market. But it, but you know, I, I think there's so much wonderful, wonderful stuff here. I find that as a writer, when I begin a new project, I kind of view it like this big building. And then I have to keep circling it and circling it and circling it to try and figure out the best way to get inside. And sometimes like I'm trying the back door and the side door and the second floor door. And and then I try and climb through a window somewhere on the third floor on a fire escape. And that's the building still sound. It's, it's a super solid building, but it's just finding your way into it sometimes as a writer that can be the tricky part. And it's not to say that where you've begun is all of that needs to be deleted or it's all useless. It's really just a case of maybe just finding another way in and then you can get to the scene later in a different way. Dear Bianca, Thank you for all that you do to help aspiring authors. I queried Cecilia Lira for novel A. She requested my full manuscript, but ultimately passed on it. I've also queried Carly Waters, but I haven't been able to pique her interest. Did I trip up in my opening pages? I want to learn and improve, and I welcome their wisdom. Cinematic and propulsive, my upmarket novel is complete at 80,000 words, and its tender-hearted and funny tone will appeal to fans of Kevin Wilson's Nothing to See Here, Laura Zygman's Separation Anxiety, and Maria Semple's Where'd You Go, Bernadette. Massage therapist Joan Johnson doesn't want to touch another back. She's wallowing in grief over the death of her boyfriend, and her bad attitude is jeopardizing her spa job. A new client, famous romance novelist Carmen Bronze, has a proposition for Joan. She'll give Joan a glowing review that will boost her standing at work if Joan will become her research assistant. 
Joan agrees and she begins funneling stories to Carmen about her clients and the spa where Carmen wants to set her next bestseller. The task inspires Joan to wonder if it's possible to write her way out of grief. She secretly embarks on the love story she wishes she'd had, one with a happy ending, starry brassy body worker Evian Jones and injured cowboy Cord McCool as stand-ins for herself and her boyfriend. There's just one problem. Joan begins hoarding the best stories about the spa for her own novel while she feeds Carmen fake research. And Carmen has sued the pants of past research assistants for smaller infractions. Enjoying life and a possible new romance, as her heart reopens, Joan drops accidental clues to expose her deceit. When Carmen discovers and claims Joan's book as her own, Joan must summon the courage to fight for her work or risk losing the fictional world that helped her heal. If she's brave enough, a motley crew of spa co-workers will help her hatch an audacious plan to rescue her handwritten book and ultimately lay claim to her own voice. While novel A is sometimes a hilarious romp, it's also about surmounting grief and discovering dormant talents. And it offers a scintillating behind-the-scenes look at wellness culture and the grind of massage therapy. Few jobs are as intimate and physically taxing. As I've been querying novel A, I've also begun writing my second novel and early pages were long listed for the Blue Pencils Agency 2020 Pitch Prize. I'm a professional writer and editor, and my writing has appeared in the Huffington Post, In These Times, Elephant Journal, The Nervous Breakdown, and Yes Magazine. And I was a freelance journalist for 15 years. I participate in writing workshops with writers in progress, am a member of the UPOD Academy of Freelance Writers, and recently completed a breakout novel course with Bianca at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for your insight, Warmly, Submitter X. Okay, Carly, would you like to start us off with the next query letter? So I actually remember um, this pitch and I remember, and I can't remember if I'd read pages or not. Personally, my taste, and this is what's so incredibly subjective about publishing, about agenting, is I don't love books about writers writing. It's just my taste. And, and set in the sense of, you know, I've talked to other you know editors about this because I do quite often get pitched books about writers. And so, especially in commercial fiction, I the market, just again, based on my conversations with editors, doesn't necessarily believe that readers want to read about writing and reading as an industry in the way that we find it that interesting. So I tend as an agent to shy away from this topic. What I did like about this pitch was the grief angle. I thought that was really interesting. And, and I thought there was a lot to work with there, but I'm very hesitant about a book about a book. There are very few instances that I can cite where I feel like that is a successful project. Um, Beach Read comes to mind. I loved Beach Read. It's a book about two novelists. So I do think it's possible, but I just think the stakes are really high in terms of making a book about writing something that all readers, all commercial readers want to read. So, you know, that's kind of my sense on that. So based on the query, I'm, I was a little bit confused on what the structure of the book was ultimately going to be because it's pitched as, you know, she secretly embarks on a love story. She wishes she had one with a happy ending so I wasn't I wasn't sure again she's writing this story so is this a book about a book within a book like I just thought there was a lot to kind of explain to the 
you know, through the pitch, what the actual structure of this book was, you know, again, very personal taste here. But yeah, ultimately, I think that the the two body paragraphs of the query letter need to be shortened. I think this is way too much detail. So we just got to like shrink that middle section. The author bio was great. The comps were good. Work counts good. Um, but yeah, that's just my my gut take. I think one of my favorite books where it's a book within a book, or actually it's a graphic novel within a book, is Station Eleven. That was just done so phenomenally well. The way that device was used to kind of keep pulling all the different parts of the story together. Um, that was something amazing. And I also think, Carly, you're so sick of us damn writers that, you, that you're having to deal with day after day that you don't want to be reading about us. <laughs> from the hesitancy of editors like I'm just my sense is that editors have this remove and that as an agent makes me nervous because I have to pitch these editors so I love to be the thing about me is I also love to be proven wrong so you know again Beach Read was amazing I love that book so I'm always waiting for uh, for the diamonds and the rough to prove me wrong I wonder if it's because the editors are scared of seeing themselves in the pages right <laughs> like I'm gonna kill my editor in the story or something <laughs> well look at the book by Stephen Rowley the editor which is about a writer who works works with, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis when she was an editor. Uh, and that's kind of the, the author and the editor relationship as well. Okay, Cece, what did you think of the query letter? I also remember this project and I so appreciate the writer reaching out to ask. I'll say that I think it's a very well-written query letter. I love all the comps. You know, if I had to give notes, it's it's really strong, right? Like it's a great query letter. It's a little long. So I agree with Carly um, that you could cut and I agree with where you could cut it. Also, Again, super minor thing, but for example, in the first paragraph, you say, cinematic and propulsive, my upmarket novel is complete at, I wouldn't use adjectives like cinematic and propulsive. And here's why. If it is cinematic and propulsive, I'll see it when I read the pages. And so the pages will tell me that. I think that, you know, when picking adjectives to describe your novel, pick ones that are really specific and really objective. Something that's cinematic is something that's super subjective. So I think I, you know, as a very minor note, because it is a very well-written query letter. So, so brava, you did a great job. Carly, would you like to dive into the actual pages? So... Ultimately, I was having a little trouble figuring out my entry point into the likability conversation, which I always think is a conversation we have to have about women's fiction. You know, I don't believe that every character has to be likable, but I do feel like I have to want to spend time with them. And I was having a bit of a hard time with like an entry point into this to like get invested. First of all, you know, the client on the table in terms of the massage, it's pretty rude, right? So I don't really like her. And then the massage therapist has a bit of a, an aggressive tone, I guess. Um, but again, we understand eventually why and it's through grief, but it comes off very, um, you know, unlikable. So I, again, don't always believe that people need to be likable, but I kind of have to understand why you're not likable. And I think this was taking a little bit too much time for me to kind of get to that point where I could understand the grief element and all of that sort of thing. So this is just a classic case of it wasn't for me, but I can see how this would be for somebody else. Um, you know, and that's just my taste. Right, Cece? So something that I love about books with hooks is that we get to like reach out and offer advice to authors who would never query us, like people who write I don't know, YA fantasy. I don't rep YA fantasy, but also to writers who have queried us. And in this case, this is really special because she has queried both Carly and myself. And Carly has shared the reasons why maybe this isn't for her. And for me, I love stories about writers writing. 
It's so strange. I agree that probably editors don't want to see it, but as a reader, I do. So writers and lovers, literary fiction, loved that. Beach read that you mentioned, Carly, um, commercial fiction, loved that. And who is Maude Dixon? I just read that, uh, like psychological thriller, obsessed with it. Like I'm obsessed with all these books and they're essentially about writers writing. The way to do it, right, as a reader is to all these books, all these examples, the strongest story in them It's not about the writing or about the writer's ambition. It's about another story. The writing is just there sort of in the background. It's not propelling the story forward. It's an essential plot point in some cases, and you're rooting for them to make it as a writer. So I think it's that balance that you have that as a reader that I like to see. It's super tricky though, because it's very meta, right? And so it's it's a little complicated, but I like it. So that was not my issue. My taste is aligned with this. In terms of likability, I love unlikable characters. The bitter, the angrier, the more filled with resentment, the better, because I like, I don't don't want to spend time with nice people. I have a lot of nice people in my own life. So I'm good with spending time with people who are mean. But here's the trick, because I had the same notice, Carly, like I'm not connecting with her. And it is because of her attitude, but not because I need her to be likable. The challenge is that from a character development perspective, I don't understand where her anger and resentment are coming from based on the pages. Based on the query, I do. It's grief. But I need to connect with the writing, right? Like the query can't be telling me something that's essential that the pages aren't telling me. Believe me when I say I understand anger. I love brittle characters. I love people who like don't take shit home essentially. But in order to make me connect, I need a hint about where it's coming from. I need more than a hint, actually. Here's what I would do if, if I were chatting with this author. One of two things. Start at a different place and have the anger be directed at someone who deserves it because I'm sorry, the client is rude, but it's not proportional. And of course it's not, it's coming from a place of grief. So it's not supposed to be, but directed at one person. Like for example, if she were talking to her ex and her ex was a jerk, then it's fine because it's personal anger. It's not this generic anger towards the world that is introducing us to your anger. It's fine to keep that generic anger towards the world later, but not as an introduction point. That's one way. Another way is then I need to know that it's coming from grief right from the very first pages. If you want to keep it like anger towards the the world, towards the client, towards the owner of the of the parlor, toward, towards everything, then I think I need to know that it's coming from grief right away. It can't just be hints. And I know the hints are there, but it's not enough for, for, for me. And this is a super subjective, personal taste thing. I worry that the protagonist comes across as childish. I have no issues with unlikability, but childish, like rebel without a cause or angry without a cause, it sounds generic, which is a shame because she does have a really good reason to be angry. I always say that anything generic is the enemy of a good novel and it's coming across as generic. I know it's not, but it's coming across as generic. So my big advice is this. First of all, we are not the only two agents out there. So again, you might want to keep it exactly as is, and that's great. And you should absolutely do that if that's where your heart is. You are the creator of the story. Your opinion is the first one that matters, the, mo- the one that most matters. But if perhaps this, these notes are resonating with you, I think unpack her anger a little bit more, unpack her resentment a little bit more, and then find, like Bianca used the great analogy about the building, find a different entryway into that emotion. That would be my note. I I love that this person presented their their pitch materials to us after the fact, because I, for many reasons, one of the reasons that I love this is because like Cece and I've been talking about this project. I don't know how many, Bianca will tell us what the, what the, how long this is taking, but imagine if Cece and I had to write rejections for every single project that comes across our desk. Like Cece and I just quickly off the top of our heads came up with, you know, all of this information about how we could help the person. We just don't have time. Right. And so I understand that that is so frustrating 
frustrating for writers to hear because this writer is probably listening and saying, why didn't they write me a pass with notes? Like I, and I can empathize with that so much, but I, you know, our agency gets over 2000 pitches a, a month. You know, we just can't, we just can't do that. And so that's why I love that we're doing this podcast and, you know, I'm grateful that Bianca brought us on because I, I think that we can give this gift to so many more writers instead of writing one person a rejection, we get to do these critiques uh, on the podcast. So, so yeah, I, I'm so thrilled that this person represented this to us. And my brain's been wearing as we've been discussing this. And I mean, something could happen to her on the way to work that morning. I mean, she could be going for coffee just to get her usual coffee and somebody really, really pisses her off. And there's this rage that comes out. Like you say, CC someone perhaps who deserves it, or maybe she sees someone who looks like her ex. You know, we've all had those moments where we're standing somewhere and we spot someone and our brain's initial reaction is, oh, it's so-and-so. And that's the horrible thing about grief is that it takes those few seconds for your brain to catch up with you and go, it can't possibly be so-and-so. So perhaps showing her really vulnerable in a moment as well might be a good way for us to understand and also to understand how people deal with grief differently. You know, some people just completely disintegrate. Some people just become super, super angry. What did you want to say, Cece? I had, as you were speaking, I also had an idea. What if she ran into, I'm pretty sure I could be wrong. I'm sorry if I'm wrong, writer, if you're listening to us, but I'm pretty sure this is her boyfriend who passed away, not her husband. What if she ran into her boyfriend's mom? And because he was only her boyfriend, which I am using air quotes, and not her husband, what if her boyfriend's mom perhaps made a comment to allude to the fact that she isn't really a grieving widow? Like it doesn't really count. Or if they were married, but perhaps they don't have kids, what if what if she said something like that? What if she said something like, well, you it's not like you had children together. So your life can go on. You can rebuild your life, like something really insensitive and mean. It doesn't have to be the mom. It can be anyone. But I think it helps if you put that anger up against an antagonist or, you know, perhaps antagonist is is way too much, but someone who is being mean to her and who is trying to diminish her grief because then we can learn about her grief. Well, it could just be the boss in this scene, right? That could be the, like, you don't even have to add another scene. I think, you know, we have these five pages here. It would just be the, this boss being like, I don't understand why you just can't get on with work because, you know, he was yes. he was just a boyfriend, not a husband, and you don't have kids together. And then she burns the place down. <laughs> much better, much better. Yes. And then we hate the boss because the boss is being really rude and really mean and really insensitive. Yes. No, I love that. Yeah. But it has to come before this scene to set up what, what happens here. Awesome. Well, there we go to our anonymous writer. Uh, we've, we've been brainstorming on your behalf. So don't say that the wheels don't turn for you guys over here. Okay, Cece, would you like to discuss the next query letter? Dear Cecilia and Carly, I'm writing to seek representation for my first novel, How About Now, a 75,000 word commercial women's fiction novel. Cecilia, I read in your bio that you adore morally ambiguous protagonists. I hope Lydia appeals. She certainly has questionable morals. How About Now is a coming-of-age story about a young woman's obsession with a man she can't have and the fallout from trying to get him. It's a story of desire, lust, and the need to be loved. Think Adele Parks playing with fire meets Dorno Porter's The Cows meets Daisy Buchanan's 
insatiable. Six years ago, freewheeling university graduate Lydia Harding thought her life finally had direction. She'd landed an internship at Kingfisher, a prestigious branding agency, and she was determined to make a go of it. But emotionally distant Freddie Mulholland, the man she had fast developed an obsessive crush on, was muddying the waters. Forcing herself to move beyond Freddie, she believed she'd found happily ever after with James. But now, she's not so sure. She's a year into married life with James and she's fast becoming bored with the monotony of monogamy. With the reappearance of Freddie, she's forced to choose between sweet James and fuckwit Freddie. Rationally an easy choice, one might say, but the heart and the head don't always agree. Why do we always want what we cannot have? More specifically, why do we always want the people who reject us? And should you chase after the one that got away? Those are the questions. Of course, Lydia has the breaking strain of a wet Kit Kat, but how far will she go to tie up the loose ends of her past relationship? And can she walk away a second time before anyone gets hurt? I'm a freelance copywriter, ex-Royal Air Force officer, ex-sugar-free dessert entrepreneur. This is my first novel. I'm currently working on my second novel, a commercial woman's fiction novel exploring loneliness, grief, and love across multiple generations. First paragraph, please add, like Carly's the one who taught me this, book, hook, cook. Um, Please add the comps. And also as a very minor note, you say that it's women's fiction novel. You just have to say um, 75,000 word commercial women's fiction. That's it. You don't have to to add novel. Um, And then you say that she has questionable morals, which I love. So yay. I love people with questionable morals. Well, I should say I love characters with questionable morals. I would condense a few of these paragraphs together and then there's a paragraph that starts with six years ago, freewheeling university graduate. So there's a few vague sentences here. So determined to make a go of it. I'm not sure what that means. Like she started at the agency, right? Like, do you need that? Do you need the rest of that sentence? And apparently Freddie started muddying the water. That's very vague. I think I want to know how he's like, what sort of conflict he's causing. Also, was he working with her at the same place? Because if he was, then I want to know. And if not, then I guess I'm confused as to why he's affecting her work relation, like her work life. Is it just because he's a bad guy and that's affecting all aspects of her life? Like that wasn't clear to me. Yeah, I think you could condense a few of these paragraphs and just do away with paragraph seven and eight. I think you can just do away with it. You're chatting about what the book is about for too long and we don't need it. We can, we can read about it when we get to the pages. I think the trick is to tease us, to give us just enough that we want to hear more, but not to say too much. Carly? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I found this query incredibly choppy, like just the number of paragraphs. Like I just felt like I was reading a bullet pointed list or something like that. And that just doesn't appeal to me. Both of the paragraphs with rhetorical questions, CC, I believe those are the two that she pointed out, definitely need to go. We don't need those. And then I also had a point to cut up at the top, um, a story of desire, lust, and the needed to need to be loved. I think that kind of stuff, you know, that vague language needs to be cut. Yeah. So anything that's vague, I agree with Cece. I want to know, yeah, how are we muddying the waters? Things like that. So vague language avoids talking about, you know, giving away too much and revealing, but it also isn't as intriguing. So we have to kind of figure out where we are in terms of straddling that that line and, and kind of where we are on either side of that boundary. So I 
generally suggest to err on the side of giving us more detail rather than less because I read this query letter and it's not like I get the full manuscript right away and start reading like I requested and then a week later you know if I'm if I'm lucky a week later I'll get to it um you know maybe two months later you know and and so there's been a lot of time between when I request the query and when I start to dive into the full manuscript so I would rather you use that query real estate to hook me by telling me more rather than less the only thing is you know if it's a murder mystery don't tell me at the end you know that kind of stuff but um but yeah err on the side of more detail rather than less detail but um ultimately once we get rid of those rhetorical questions make it less choppy i think we have a a a good or better query letter great carly would you like to start us off with the actual pages i really liked what we were doing here and i know that bianca only reads you guys the query letters you don't know what's happening on these pages necessarily but it's essentially a woman who go to a bar, brings home a guy. And so I feel like I always sound prudish when I talk about like how sex belongs on a page and when it doesn't belong and when it does belong. But I have no problem with seeing sex scenes on the page. What I do have an issue with is kind of how CC was talking about earlier, like the, like being generic about it, because like, we're not like, we, like, obviously we know that people interact in intimate moments, like it's part of life and it's part of fiction. But when writers tend to write about sex, I think they sometimes think that being shocking or provocative by talking about sex on the page is enough. And I just don't think that's enough. Like, I want to know if, if she's a sex addict, like why or how, or like the behind, because the sex is just the physical outcome of all of those internal feelings. And if she's chasing, you know, acceptance or something happened to her, or, you know, I just want to know all of that stuff that's happening behind the scenes. But I, I liked her detached attitude. I liked that she couldn't remember the guy's name. Like, I don't know. I just thought it was, it was all lovely, but I just wanted to know what she was chasing, like addiction, loneliness, companionship. By the time I get to the end of these pages, I just wanted a little bit more of that. Ultimately, I thought also she's, she has the sense of humor about it. And so she's not asking the reader to necessarily be in the moment in sense of like a romance novel and being swept up, you know, with all of the, you know, the heated emotions. It's, you know, she's, she's being detached. There's a sense of irony. There's a sense of humor that was really interesting. So I think, you know, all that to say, there's, there's a lot of really great things happening here. And I also just on a line level really liked the plot <laughs> that her roommate pretends to be the boyfriend to kind of kick the guy out. So, so she can finally get some sleep and everybody in the apartment can get some sleep. So ultimately I really liked it. I, I think that I just didn't get enough of why she feels this way about her relationship to sex. Okay, good. Cece? Agree with everything. In terms of the, because this is so much about sex, right? And I'll, I'll say something that will probably seem strange, but that I believe to be true. Sex isn't sexy. Sex on the page, not sexy. If you were to think of a sexual interaction, if someone were to give you bullet points of that sexual interaction on the page, would probably not read as sexy. What's sexy is, what, is what's behind that. It's it's what's going through your mind. It's what you want. It's what you're getting. It's what you wish you were getting. It's what that's reminding you of. It's the push and pull. It's the cat and mouse with yourself. Inner life can be sexy. So if the objective is to be sexy, I would focus more on the inner life with the sex still there, but not quite so much on the play-by-play, if that makes sense. And then if the purpose is not to be sexy, then I think that what is the purpose? Is the purpose to show, I don't know, an addiction or perhaps just the really casual, liberated way of being or, or anything else? I think focus on the inner life of that. The first question to ask yourself if I were chatting with this writer is, what is the purpose of showing the sex? And whatever that purpose is, connect that to the inner life. In terms of 
like the pages as a whole, my big advice is to cut the flashback and dial back on the explanation. We don't need to know right off the bat the protagonist's usual MO when she's like out on the prowl, right? Like we don't need to know that level of detail. If, if you follow Bianca's great tip on highlighting everything that's backstory and everything that's explanation, because I did it when I was reading this, it's it's a lot. There's not enough scene. Pick a scene. And if the scene is the protagonist waking up to the snoring guy and wanting the snoring man to leave with, with her room roommate's help. That's great. But stick to that scene. Highlight everything that's not happening in that present moment. And you'll see that it's it's quite a bit. I don't think it belongs in those pages. You can still keep that stuff and use it for later. But remember, these are the first pages. We don't really know what's going on. We have to be invested. And it's really hard to get us to be invested in what's going on now and on how we got there, why we do it, what we usually do. So I think that's that would be like my big note. Immerse the reader in scene. Make sure the scene is introducing us to the protagonist and it's propelling the story forward by adding tension. Did not get a lot of tension here, and I think there's potential for tension, so I would just try to bring that to the surface a bit more. Wonderful. Those are our queries for today. Thank you so much to everybody for submitting. And for the rest of you who are building up the courage, we look forward to reading your submissions. Thank you everybody for sharing your wonderful words with us. We know it's so brave and we're quite frankly honored every week that you are willing to put yourself out there on a platform you know, and by doing that, you're also educating so many others. So it really is a community service that you're doing for, for the whole group. And we're, we're loving all of the feedback that you guys are giving us in terms of how much you're enjoying the program, what you're liking about it. So always chat with us on social media because we, we love to hear it. Thanks guys. And something very encouraging has been the people who have submitted their queries and opening pages who are revising frantically and polishing based on what they've heard us say about previous submissions and who are sending in entirely different opening chapters based on that, which in my opinion um, is often so much so much stronger. So, so that's been very encouraging to see as well. Just a reminder of a few things that we've got coming up. Carly's teaching a session called How to Write a Nonfiction Proposal That Sells. That's on the 29th of April at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom. Go to her Instagram page for the link in the bio to register. Cece also has a webinar coming up on the 20th of May at 8 p.m. Eastern Time called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life's Journey into a book. If you'd like to sign up for that, please go to her Instagram page and you'll find the link in her bio. I have a few courses coming up as well. Visit my website at biancamaray.com to take a look. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words. So you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Before I chat with Tracy, I'd like to give a shout out to a few bookish podcasts that I love listening to and that I highly recommend. Now, literary podcasts aren't just for readers, which, by the way, you absolutely need to be in order to be a good writer. I say time and again that I'm first and foremost a reader, and I can't overemphasize how much I've learned about the craft of writing through reading widely across all genres. There's no room for uh, literary snobbery if you want to be a good writer because every single genre has got something to teach you. Now, literary podcasts are wonderful ways to learn about other writers' work, their process, their themes that they're exploring, and to see what other people are doing. So give a listen to The Stacks, obviously, uh, and after listening to Tracy, you'll understand why. Another one I like is The Book Cougars, whose byline is Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. Stereo Embers, the podcast. 
podcast is a weekly program with authors, actors, artists, and musicians talking about the current creative moment in their lives. So certainly something all aspiring writers can relate to. Uh, There's another podcast called the Currently Reading Podcast, which is book besties, Meredith and Katie, chatting about the books they've read and the ones they think you need to read. The Inside Flap, which is a lively book talk show with author interviews, witty banter, fun sound effects, and sometimes author karaoke. Don't worry, you will never hear me singing on their show. My singing is awful. Uh, The Writer's Bone is another one with Daniel Ford, in which aspiring authors, best-selling scribes, and award-winning screenwriters confront writing angst. Again, a lot to relate to. It's a podcast for the conversationalist, and I'll be interviewing the host, Daniel Ford, in an upcoming episode. And then a special shout out to the Thoughts from a Page podcast with Cindy Burnett, who I chatted with a few weeks ago about my novel, If You Want to Make God Laugh. I've had a few requests from listeners who've read my work, who want me to talk about it more on the show, uh, but that's not what this podcast is about. So I'll reference my work in terms of what I've learned, which might be useful to you. But if you want to hear more about what makes me tick in my own work, give that episode a listen. It's a great one. And Thoughts from a Page is a really wonderful podcast in general. Now let's move on to today's guest, who is Tracy Thomas, the host of the Stacks podcast. If you don't listen to it already, you are missing out. You absolutely have to subscribe. It's your literary best friend, your virtual book club, your one-stop shop for everything books. And Tracy is absolutely amazing. Tracy, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome. I'm so excited. Thank you for inviting me. This is such a treat. Well, I I was on your show two years ago when my second novel, If You Want to Make God Laugh, came out, and you interviewed me about that, and it was such a wonderful discussion. I absolutely loved it, and if you had told me then that in two years' time, I would be interviewing you (laughs) on my own (laughs) podcast, I would have told you that you were smoking some really good stuff, Uh, but clearly, you know, you inspired me, Tracy, so here we are, and uh, it's wonderful to have have you on the show. Now, to kick off. Why don't you tell our listeners more about your podcast? The Stacks is a podcast. It's all about books and the people who read them. It's really focused on the reader's experience and what happens when you're reading books. So I do interview a bunch of authors, but I also interview actors, podcasters, um, screenwriters, and just like book lovers in general. And sort of the premise of the show is the first week of the month, I have a guest. They come on, we talk about their relationship with books and reading. And then the last week of the month, that same guest comes back and we have a book club book that we've read together that we discuss in detail, which means spoilers, just letting people know. I, If you're going to read a book with me, I think we should get to talk about the ending. I'm very passionate about that. And then every week in between, the show comes out on Wednesdays, every Wednesday in between the first and the last, I have a different author come on and talk about their new book. So those questions are a little bit more about the process, about the book, and it's just exciting to talk about um, new books. And that's how the show works. Some of my listeners really laugh at me because I fangirl hard and they go, (laughs) oh, but you're an author. You shouldn't be fangirling. And I'm first and foremost a reader and writers are my rock stars. So when I chat to a writer who I absolutely love, I get super 
super, super excited. And I mean, you speaking to actors and, and other people as well. So could you tell us like what, who were the authors you spoke to or the actors you spoke to that you really were fangirling hard and it was kind of difficult to, to be super professional? Yes. Okay. So for the actors, I should be very transparent. I was an actress in New York. And so a lot of these people are my very close friends. So I don't fangirl over the actors so much, but you know, I've had some really great performers like Becca Tobin from Glee, um, Wade Elaine Marcus, who's on Insecure, Vela Lavelle from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And those are all of my very close friends, but I think other people get really excited about them. Um, but as far as authors who are really my rock stars, who I am obsessed with, I, I think it would be crazy not to start with Kiese Lehman and Jason Reynolds, because I almost passed out when I spoke to both of them. They're just so great and lovely. And I got to interview Jason in the before the pandemic time. And so I got to sit in a room with him and he just smells so good. Like it's just worth saying that he is handsome and loves children and loves his mom and is a nice guy and a critical reader and he smells good. So like a you know, a quadruple threat or whatever. I also got to interview Dave Cullen, who I'm obsessed with. And his book, Columbine, was really formative in my adult reading experience. So that was really special as well. Jenna Wortham from the New York Times. I interviewed her. Jenna Kiese, Dave Cullen, this guy named Shay Serrano, who I love. They were all on my uh, bucket list before I started the podcast. So that was really special to get to interview people that I had set out wanting to interview before I ever interviewed anyone. So yeah, those are the ones that are sticking out right now. And yep, for the listeners who want to listen to those, you need to uh, start subscribing to the Stacks. And I mean, there's a lot of backlist episodes there. So that's a great thing. It'll keep you busy for a while and you can you can look for, for all of these episodes. Something that I especially want to chat about today, Tracy, is Bookstagram and Bookstagrammers. So for our listeners who don't really know how that works, could you take us through what Bookstagram is and what Bookstagrammers do? Yes. So I I just had to explain this to my mom yesterday. So I think I, I think I have a grasp for people who have no clue what I'm talking about. So if you're familiar with Instagram, that's a website where you share pictures and you write captions. Bookstagram is just a group of people who are on Instagram who are talking about books. So it's not its own app. It's not a special thing. Um, if folks are familiar with the term black Twitter, which is just black people on Twitter, basically, Bookstagram is the same idea on Instagram. It's just a community of folks who are writing about books, posting pictures of book stacks, um, writing book reviews, doing giveaways around books. It's all about books and authors. And it's just this incredible corner of the internet. It's just this like little niche pocket of Instagram. And bookstagrammers are just the people who do that work. Right. So bookstagrammers are constantly promoting authors. They are promoting publishers. They're promoting authors. They promote certain books. Many, many bookstagrammers have their own book clubs where they will pick a book for the month and they encourage people to go out and buy the book. And then everybody reads together and then they discuss the book, etc. Is there a way for you, Tracy, as a bookstagrammer to see the impact you have in terms of what you're covering? on Bookstagram compared to what people are going out and buying? So yes and no. Also, I am sort of in a unique position because I have this book podcast and I've built my Bookstagram page is really a podcast page. So unlike some people who do this really like for the love of the game and the love of books, I sort of, I guess, have ulterior motives, which is my podcast, which is still to promote books and all of that. But it's slightly different than someone, say, like Lupita Reads, who's just a really avid reader who 
whose like whole mission is to uplift books by people of color, you know. But that being said, I can track my book sales in a few ways. So I have what they call an affiliate link with bookshop.org. So anytime someone purchases a book through my bookshop, I get a small percentage, which means I'm able to see anyone who clicked my link and then purchased. Now, probably a lot of your listeners know you might see something on Instagram or Twitter or in the New York Times and then go to your local bookstore and buy. I can't see that. So I know a very, very, very small percentage of the influence that I have over book purchasing. That being said, I also can see, um, I have the same thing with Amazon, though I don't promote Amazon. I pretty much only promote Bookshop, but I do have those links that are up on the show notes for the snacks or something. So that's a way that I can see. And then I can see when people tag me in posts on Instagram saying, I bought this book because of you, or I requested it at my library. But again, those are all anecdotal and much, much harder to track. And just uh, for the listeners, could you tell us what Bookshop is and why you kind of direct readers there as opposed to Amazon? So bookshop.org is a website. They, they sell books. It's a bookshop. And what's really great is that a percentage of every single book sale goes to independent bookstores. And I believe it's 10% goes to independent bookstores. And then another 10%, if you use an affiliate link, goes to whoever your affiliate is. So if you buy a $20 book, a bookstore gets $2 and I get $2 and that's how it works. So the reason that I promote them is because they're also supporting independent bookstores, which is something that I love. And it's also a way for me to make a little bit of money since I'm sure we're going to get to this part. Bookstagrammers don't really make money from the publishers. So a lot of the posting that you see um, and the promoting of books is totally free publicity, free marketing for these books and these publishers. Yeah. And uh, just before we move on to that, in terms of bookshop.org, is that you as a reader can decide which indie bookstore you want the money to go to. So if your local indie bookstore is, you know, whatever, you can select them as as the bookstore that um, the profits of that will go to. It's kind of the same as with Libro FM as well, who sell audiobooks. But again, it's independent bookstores who benefit from that sale and not, you know, sort of Amazon as well. Coming back now to what you said, Tracy, in terms of the making money for bookstagrammers, because I am constantly blown away by the time and effort that bookstagrammers put into their accounts. They take the most beautiful photographs. Some of them have these huge professional setups, very professional cameras. They need special lighting. They need special tripods. They will, they've got all kinds of extra things that they put in the pictures. You know, they will collect maps, for example, or whatever things to do with the book, like an ink and quill or, you know, little ornaments and things like that. And they spend hours setting up these pictures and, and then they take them and, you know, they make it look so easy but obviously it's incredibly <laughs> time consuming to do it. Plus they have to read all the books, plus they have to review all the books. So in terms of what do publishers send bookstagrammers? Like what do bookstagrammers get from publishers for promoting their author's work? Okay. So this really depends. And my account is, is pretty large. I have over 50,000 followers, which is one of the larger bookstagram accounts from a black woman. There's a few people who have larger accounts than me, but one of, one of the ones I'm thinking of is well-read black girl, which is run by Gloria Dean, but she's also an author and many other things. But that being said, I once was a much smaller bookstagrammer and it really depends. So in the beginning, I only posted books I owned, I purchased. 
whatever I was reading is what I was posting. As the accounts grow, there is a relationship that builds with the publishers. And so when people hit about 2000 or so followers, they start um, reaching out to publishers and a publisher might send them a book with the hopes that they'll post it. As book accounts grow and as the relationships with publishers grow, you might get sent 10 books over the course of a month or so from five different publishers, let's say. And the request is that you post the book and tag the publisher if you do. There's no necessary commitment to do that, but there is a little bit of pressure if you don't post, if you just get 10 books and don't ever post about them at all. There are other times where publishers will reach out to you and say, hi, we're doing a cover reveal for Bianca Maris's new book. And here's the PDF. And we'd like you to post next Tuesday between 11 and 12, your time. And we would like you to do a swipe up in your story. And in exchange, we'll send you an advanced copy of the book digitally. And so that is totally unpaid and you don't even end up getting a copy of the book necessarily. You get a digital copy. If you have an e-reader, great. If you read on an e-reader, great. But a lot of people don't. And there's a lot of requirements around that. And that's fine. If you want to do that, you can. But I don't believe in that because that is a real marketing campaign. And I believe that there should be money behind any time a publisher asks someone to post something specifically. Um, anytime they're saying that something should be on someone's feed, I believe that there should be payment for that. Um, if you look at other industries like the makeup industry, they have influencers who are making six, seven figures a year posting on social media. The kind of general rule of thumb as far as influencing goes, and this is not the case in publishing, and this really can vary depending on engagement. So this is super general, is that for every 10,000 followers, you should charge $100 per post. So that's a very, very general number. And it, again, it really depends on your interactions. And so some people make much, much more. Some people make less. It just depends. But in other industries, that's sort of the standard. And so publishing is paying $0 for these types of requests. And in exchange, sending a $30 book, maybe, or an ARC, which and is an advanced copy for those who don't know. Yeah, the, the advanced reader copy. So there was recently an article in the New York Times about BookTok, which is, you know, it's TikTok, but for books, kind of like Bookstagram and Instagram. Could you just talk, uh, take us through that article, Tracy, and, and kind of what was covered there? Yeah. So what was covered in that article? And I just want to say this before I say anything else, just to be very clear. I believe that TikTokers, BookTokers, book bloggers, Bookstagrammers, I believe we all should be paid. And that the idea that one group is getting paid and another isn't is not to say that I think one group should and another shouldn't. I actually think we all deserve payment for all of our work. So, with that being said, I'll now explain. So, there was an article in the New York Times and it was talking about how this new kind of fad, I guess, or like meme of book talkers getting on TikTok and talking about a, a backlist title like something like a little life, let's say, and crying and then going viral and then people going out and buying this book. And they said that these TikTokers were being offered anywhere between a hundred and thousands of dollars to post videos that publishers were trying to get in on this like action because they said that it was the only form of social media that had a big impact on book sales, which is tricky in a few ways. One of which is that almost every single book, I actually think every single book they mentioned was already a best-selling book in the past. So Song of Achilles, I believe was one they mentioned. I don't know some of the titles they mentioned because I've never heard of the books, but it's just, I read a lot of nonfiction, to be honest. We so Were Liars as well. Yeah, liar. Again, that was again, uh, already a bestseller. 
Yeah. So, so that's part of it is that these books already exist in the zeitgeist. The other part of it is that TikTok is overwhelmingly for a younger generation. So I'm a millennial. I think it's Gen Z is like really running it. It's like they talked about how there were teenagers and who one, one gal said, uh, they offered me a lot of money, but I didn't think I could do it because I couldn't do that in my homework. She was in high school. So I think that there's also a super generational thing. I don't, my mom is definitely not on TikTok. I'm not even on TikTok, to be honest. Like I watch the videos sometimes, but I don't, I'm not on, I don't, produce anything there. So I think that's another thing that complicates it. I also think Bookstagram is being asked to promote new books, which is a little bit harder. There's no word of mouth for a book that's coming out tomorrow unless it's generated by the marketing scheme. And so we're being asked to be part of that marketing scheme, but most people don't know what's coming out every Tuesday. Most people aren't paying attention. And so if they see it from my bookstagram and then they see it on Jenna Bush Hager's Good Morning, I can't remember if she's Good Morning America or the Today Show, whichever one she is, or if Reese Witherspoon or, or someone else they follow, or then they see it at the bookstore and then all of a sudden they've seen it enough and they're like, oh, I want to read that versus something that's already been a bestseller. It's like, oh, I've already, I know that cover. Oh, sure. I want to read that. So that's also really complicates it. And then the other thing that was pretty disappointing for me as a black woman is that they didn't feature any black book talkers in the New York Times article. And as we, I think most of us know, Black folks are the culture, especially when it comes to TikTok, all those dance videos and things, those are always started by young black folks. And then they get co-opted by young white people and then become popular. And so it was disappointing that the New York Times didn't feature, they featured one woman of color. I don't know what her ethnicity was, but uh, she was a woman of color and that was it. Otherwise it was only white book talkers, which was very disappointing. So there's a lot of things. And, And the reason I bring up the racial component also is that as we saw, I think last summer, there was a whole big movement from authors about publishing pages me about the disparities and what authors are being paid for publishing. And in addition to the advances being smaller for Black and other, other authors of color, is that we saw that that also was reflected in their marketing budgets. So what happens is that they then send these books to Black and Brown bookstagrammers and say, we don't have a budget to pay you, but please promote this book. And so then it gets left on our shoulders. If you don't promote this book, this book won't be successful. And so then we start to feel like we have relationships with these authors, we're connecting with them through Bookstagram, and we feel obligated to support their work. And we've seen time and time again, I mean, Britt Bennett's book, The Vanishing Half, was huge on Bookstagram long before the book came out, long before it was a New York Times bestseller. And I believe that Bookstagram had a huge impact on that becoming a New York instant New York Times bestseller. Obviously, it was picked on Good Morning America and other there were other factors, but I don't think you can separate the love that Bookstagrammers had for her first book, The Mothers, and the way that The Vanishing Half in addition to it being an incredibly good book, not to take anything away from Brit's writing, obviously. So that was a lot, but that sort of sums up kind of the issue at hand. And and also just the bookstagram is influenced that even I'd say sort of two years ago, what publishers were doing is that they were sending the advanced reader copies of authors of color to white bookstagrammers to ask them to review that. And then that was kind of problematic because you were seeing these books not being rated very highly on Goodreads and things like that, because some of these reviewers were saying things like, well, I can't relate to this. And it was like, for the love of God, man, like (laughs) you don't have to be relating to this to know what a brilliant book this is, et cetera, et cetera. And then I feel like Bookstagram had a whole movement as well, that that is when publishers started actually sending authors of color, they work to reviewers of color, so that own voices were at least weighing in on the conversation as well. 
I mean, so, that's still happening. It's still, I, again, have a large account and I have been turned down for own voices titles of, I mean, this is a very anecdotal story, but I once reached out to a marketing team to get a copy of a book that I was planning on interviewing the authors. And they told me, no, I could wait for the link for the e-copy, even though the book had already been released. And I had to then reach out to the author's team and be like, hey, my contact at the publisher won't send me the book. Would you guys mind getting it sent to me? And this is a book that I was an own voices reviewer for and should never have even had to, and should never have gotten to that point. Like the least they could have done was just sent me the link straight up and it would have been over. And eventually I would have gotten the physical copy, which I need so that I can post about it on my bookstagram, obviously. But even now, even, you know, because I think after the summer with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, there was a sort of a shift in the ways that publishers wanted to be seen by the public. But that hasn't always translated in a shift of actually making sure that they're prioritizing own voices. There has been a slight shift, but it's still not, it's still not complete. And it still has affected the ways that books are reviewed and the initial buzz around a book for sure. And you put together a reading list, didn't you, in terms of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, telling people the kind of books they should be reading. Would you, could you tell us a bit about that as well? Yeah. So I put together an anti-racist reading list, which now sounds really trite and like kind of cliche, but I swear I was one of the first people to do it. And it went totally viral. And I, sold, you know, thousands of books and it was, I mean, it's an interesting thing. And now I have a lot of feelings about it almost a year later about the ways, you know, now that we know that a lot of white people bought these books and didn't read them or they bought them from their local independent black owned bookstore and then proceeded to call them and harass them because the books were taking longer to get delivered in a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I also read this incredible piece from Lauren Michelle Jackson, who wrote the book, White Negroes, all about the kind of futility of a anti-racist reading list, which I encourage folks to check out as well, because I do have mixed feelings. But in the moment at the time, it felt like something that I could do. And it had a really large impact. And it sold a lot, a lot, a lot of books. And so I think that's something else that publishers sort of overlook. Because again, I posted it through bookshop.org. I sold thousands of copies in the first like 10 days. But I also know tons of people who looked at my list and then called their local Black-owned bookstore and bought books. So it's hard to track these things. But I think that for the publishing industry to imply that bookstagrammers don't have a large impact, I think that's unfair also because I know that um, publishing is very smart. And they wouldn't be sending thousands of dollars of free books to people all across the country and across the world if they didn't think they were getting something out of it. I mean, that's just a silly business decision, right? And so, you know, there was this, I wish I could remember who did it, but there was a study that recently came out that said, about the impact of where folks get their book recommendations. The number one was friends and family. Number two was authors. And number three was social media. That was above Amazon. That was above New York Times bestseller list. That was above book club picks. I mean, it's number three. And I would argue that a lot of people also consider their online friends, their real friends. So it's hard to even separate social media from a friend's recommendation. But the impact is is certainly there. And also, you know, you say that above social media was other authors. And I speak to a ton of book clubs about my books. And I always get asked what I'm reading. And but what I'm reading is influenced by social media. It's influenced by people like you. So I have a look at things that like, what are you reading? What are you promoting? And so those are the books that I will be promoting and reading as well. So they say, you know, they're influenced by authors. But again, they're not looking at the influence that social media and bookstagrammers have on authors. I mean, I have my to-be-read pile is now a three-tier trolley (laughs) with stuff 
shit's piled up on top of other stuff. And this week I bought like three books that Bookstagram made me buy. And I was just like, I don't need these books, but everybody on Bookstagram <laughs> is reading these books. So now I'm reading these books as well. I'm hugely, hugely influenced by Bookstagrammers. And I know a ton of authors, all the books that they're recommending are ones that they are seeing Bookstagrammers recommending. We're as influenced as anybody else's. So, you know, again, you can't kind of uh, separate that that influence. And I know for a fact that, I mean, my first book came out in 2017. My second one came out in 2019. People are still buying those books today because of Bookstagram, mm -hmm. because Bookstagrammers pick up a backlist book. They choose it for their book club. They all get together and discuss it and read it. Most people wouldn't even know about these books if it wasn't for Bookstagrammers. So I I'm incredibly grateful to Bookstagrammers. I'm incredibly grateful to all of them for, for, for their hard work and how they influence reading. So in terms of what can be done, Tracy, you've got a town hall that's coming up. Could you take us through that and, and give us some details for listeners who would like to hop onto that and maybe educate themselves more? Because most of my listeners are emerging writers mm. or writers who've already published. And, you know, in terms of going forward as somebody who will be bringing out a book soon in the next year or so, it's really important for you to know who the people are who are going to be doing the heavy lifting when it comes to selling your book and the people who are going to be your biggest champions and how you can help them in the meantime. Yeah, of course. That's so great. And I'll just say this just briefly to folks who are emerging writers who are hoping to tap into the Bookstagram community just in general. Um, it's a super receptive community that's people who love books and love authors. And the one thing that I think we're realizing is that having the solidarity from authors is very meaningful, especially in such a thankless position right now. You know, you mentioned Bookstagrammers in the acknowledgments of your book, your second book. And I remember when I read the book for the show, I read the acknowledgments and I was like, oh, that's so nice. You know, and a, a few authors do that and it really goes a long way. Um, and also just advocating for books or grammars and other social media influencers in the book space when you are having those conversations around marketing, around promoting the book, when your book does sell and your book is coming out, being an advocate for the people who will undoubtedly be your biggest advocate um, in the social media space. But for the town hall, I got together with a, a group of black and brown bookstagrammers and we organized sort of an event that we, is called the State of Bookstagram. And it's going to be on April 14th, Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And we are going to be talking about Bookstagram, a little bit about what it is, what we're seeing, what we hope to see. And then we have representatives as of this recording from four of the five big five publishers, as well as some smaller independent and mid-sized independent presses who will also be there to answer questions and discuss. As of recording, we've already maxed out our RSVP list, but we will be streaming to YouTube. Um, I'm trying to get a, a wealthy benefactor or corporate employee to let me use their Zoom account because ours is maxed out and we want as many people to be there as possible. And so we're going to be talking. We sort of have our own agenda and then we have time for questions and the publishers who have sent representatives are there to answer questions. So we're going to be talking about marketing budgets. We're going to be talking about ARCs. We're going to be talking about international readers and how they can receive books and copies because right now international readers don't always have access to books because of licensing laws, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to be talking about a bunch of things. And also just, we're just trying to find a way to make this space more inclusive, equitable, 
and to make sure that bookstagrammers are being treated with the respect that they deserve for the work that they do. Because again, I am in this space, but I'm not a true bookstagrammer at heart. And there are so many incredible ones. I mentioned Lupita. I'd love to shout out Absorbed in Pages, Owl's Little Library, Bookish and Black. Yeah. One of my favorites is Spines and Vines. Yes, of course. Jamise is wonderful. Books, Tea and Henny, Melanated Reader. I mean, there's just so many incredible, incredible, incredible people. And I, I personally, as a Black woman, again, I focus on reading mostly books by people of color. And so many of the bookstagrammers I follow are black and brown because that's my interest. But the thing that's great about bookstagram is that there are readers for for anybody. There are accounts that are dedicated solely to romance novels or sci-fi or YA or, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in. So just engaging in the space. And then, you know, the town hall is really here to try to make space for us and to, to get paid for our work and to figure out when we should be getting paid and what we should be asking for and all of those things. So it's just sort of a coming together. And this conversation started a long time ago. And I'm just hoping that with this event, that we can continue sort of pushing for the changes that we want to see. Um, so even if you're not a bookstagrammer, your support, attending the event, um, promoting the event, anything that you feel comfortable doing. If you've ever picked up a book because of a bookstagrammer, we would love for you to be there. We just, you know, we're sort of the teeny tiny fish up against these huge companies that keep telling us in different ways we don't have the money. And my response almost always is sort of, you know, you would never reach out to the New York Times to run an ad in the paper and tell them to do it for a free book. So why are you running an ad on my page that I've built? And arguably, I have a much stronger relationship with my readers than the New York Times does because, you know, an advertisement in a newspaper doesn't get to have, these are my thoughts. This is what I like. This is what I didn't like. If you like this, I think you'll like that. You know, I have such a strong relationship with so many people in my community. And so putting something on my page is me really vouching for it. And I don't take that lightly and I won't promote something that I don't believe in. And if I read a book that I hate, I'll say, I really didn't like that. You know, like I'm not shy. And I think most bookstagrammers are pretty open and truthful. So if they love something, they really do. Tracy, it's been wonderful chatting with you. We're out of time. I could chat with you forever, but <laughs> listeners, I will be posting about the town hall on my Instagram page and on the podcast Instagram page. So look out for the details there as well and uh, join the conversation and let's try and be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.